Welcome to Navigating Your Child's Education, a podcast for parents, grandparents, and anyone raising or influencing young people. I'm your host, Laura. On this episode, we have the honor of talking with Katherine Todd. Katherine is an author, speaker, teacher, and passionate advocate for children with disabilities. She's also the founder and president of Teach, Bloom, Grow, which provides workshops, private tutoring, IEP coaching, and support for parents of children with special learning needs. Today, we're discussing what it looks like for families to foster a heart for inclusion in the home. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Tell us a bit about your journey. What life experiences have brought you to where you are today? This really starts with becoming a mother. And I didn't, I think I just thought like a lot of us do when we enter parenting, that you're in, like, you're entitled um, to have a healthy child. Like I'm not, there's not going to be a problem, but there was just signs that something was off in my pregnancy. So I had her, everything seemed fine. When she was um, preschool age, I took her to preschool and we lived in Minnesota at that time. My husband is a physician doing medical training. So with that said, he's very informed. So you think like, well, he's a doctor, he's going to see things. He's not a pediatrician, but you know, so we have her, we get her in preschool. I would go to pick her up and the teachers would say things like, um, she doesn't engage with the other kids. She stands on the outskirts, doesn't act like a normal preschooler. So again, that's, you know, 21 years ago, she's 25. Now the language was different than what we would hear today that teachers weren't really prepared for what they were seeing. And I just, she was my oldest, so I didn't know her development was any different because I had no benchmark. I had no other child to look at. So I'd say that it wasn't a diagnosis. It was having a preschooler who didn't fit the norm. Hmm. And then, you know, we get into kindergarten and it, she doesn't act like a typical kindergarten. She doesn't enjoy the kindergartner experience. Like she, hmm. and I'm like, what's that? I wasn't a teacher at the time. So I think there was little seeds that I was realizing I was in a world that I know I didn't want to be in, mm. honestly. And I didn't know what that looked like. And I married to a doctor who like no study development. He didn't know. So there was nothing that told us because you have a lens that that's your child. They're perfect. And so that's kind of what got me into, wow, something's going on. Mm. And then I had three more children. And then my youngest, who's a boy, started showing signs of, wow, like we have one. And then I took him to actually interesting, took him to church, to Sunday school. And they, the woman pulled me aside and said, I'm a special needs teacher. Your child has special needs. That was kind of what thrusted me into the neuro, neurodiverse world. I've seen the words neurodiversity, neurodivergent, and neurotypical pop up in reading lately. Could you briefly explain each of these? Neurodiversity is just kind of like the brain has natural diversity. It's just kind of a general term that the brain is naturally diverse. Okay, so nobody's, no two people's brains are alike. There's a natural diversity in the human brain, right? And I'm not a psychologist. I'm a teacher (laughs) with kids that are affected. And then neurodivergent would be a person whose brain um, functions different from what is considered quote unquote normal. And then, so neurodiverse, you know, the, the prefix neuro has to do with brain. 
And then typical is their brain functions typically. So like the way it should. And that's, I hate to say that, but that's, look at the words diverse and typical within, you know, the, the diverse, and it's all based on that particular child. And a lot of people, and I have found that my adult children with autism will say, I'm offended that you're referring to me as divergent, neurodivergent. So it's, it's interesting in the communities with adults affected and young adults affected by autism, they don't like it being called a disability or why is my way a diverse? It just is the way, it's just the way my brain is different. Now I've heard about the importance of people first language. Like you said, your kids don't, the first, they don't want to be described first as someone with autism. Can you explain a little bit about what people first language is and and why it's important? I think it's just that I identify with who I am as a human being. Don't use a label for me. Um, You know, like the dyslexic child or the autistic girl. Like I think these terms that we discuss, like that's going to, you're going to see more in a report that a teacher or psychologist would put out, Mm -hmm. but it's not, I think in the classroom terms that we use, but it, you know, it helps to define that we are all different. But I think as a Christian parent, I just wanted my kids to see you are different. Autism is not negative. Mm. Because how are you going to see the beauty in someone else? If you hear a label, if you can't accept yourself. I love that phrase. It sticks out to me. You said to see the beauty in other people. And, you know, I have two young children that would be considered neurotypical. And we've had some some interactions or they've noticed people in public or they've interacted with peers or maybe kids that are a little bit older that are not neurotypical. And my kids can tell something's different about this person. And I've noticed that they seem to be typically their response is discomfort. They don't know how to interact. They don't know how to engage. They might even be a little bit afraid depending on what behaviors they're seeing. So how as parents can we sort of foster this heart for inclusion and and a lens of seeing the beauty in other people when there's maybe a natural reaction of discomfort or or confusion. Yeah. I think that what's important to know and and just to make you feel better as a parent that I have two neurotypical children and two neurodivergent. Okay. So but my neuro my children on the spectrum um, have looked at other kids in the same way that you're saying your young children do. So it's not a neuro, just a neurotypical response, kids without a disability. It is a response that I think you have to work on with all children mm-hmm. that my, my, my child, my daughter went to school at one point with someone that had a physical disability. And I noticed she would always walk away from this young child. And I would say, what's going on? And she would say, I'm scared of him because you know, it, he's different physically, right? He, um, so I think that it's, it's something we need to address with neurodivergent and neurotypical children. I think specifically what I would say with your neurotypical young children is what kind of community, number one community, what community are you building at home? And are your friendships with all neurotypical adults who have neurotypical children? right? So what are they seeing in that social setting in preschool and outside of preschool or kindergarten, whatever their age? 
So think about that. Do you have friends, adult friends that might have be neurodivergent? Do, are they seeing or in communities, whether it's at a dance class or what are extracurriculars, finding opportunities where they're getting the diversity of individuals in them prior to outside of the classroom. And also what are your, like, who are you hanging out with? Are you hanging out with people who have children that aren't all neurotypical? Because I think that it starts so much of that. What are they seeing? Mm. How can they create an inclusive and think of inclusion? We as teachers know inclusion. And a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Inclusion is included. Like people want to be included, break it. It's easy. It's a thing, but it's so hard. And it's what kind of environment, who are you having over to dinner? Who do you hang out with? Who does your husband hang out with? What do they see? Who do you gravitate towards at church? Are you volunteering in a classroom that's for neurodivergent children? Because often it's easier to work in the class with the neurotypical children. So, you know, what start at church, take them or in a community center, take them to volunteer in a class of kids that might be students that might have or, or young children that might be have a disability. I am interrupting this episode for a quick announcement. One of the most important decisions we make as parents is where to send our kids to school. When we think about how many hours a day our kids are at school, there's no denying the fact that it has a profound influence on who they are. Get to know more about Worthington Christian School by downloading our free 24-page viewbook. Visit worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Again, it's worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Now back to our show. Now, you know, kids have questions, right? And my kids have lots of questions, particularly in situations like this. So my son has questions, but I don't always feel like I know exactly how to answer his questions. So what what advice would you give in a situation like that? Or, okay, my son's interacting with a peer that clearly is, um, he notices is different from him. Mm-hmm. How can I empower him to engage without fear and without um, confusion or with minimal confusion? Well, I think there's a couple things that you could do. Number one is like, take it upon yourself to find out like who that parent is of that child and create opportunities and go out of your way to make connections with her or him. Meeting that parent and kind of opening up the dialogue from, hey, we would really like to get, would you like to do a play date? Mm-hmm. Would you like, like setting that up because at that age of his child, you're not expecting him to like, oh, go include that child. You're setting mm-hmm. it up. And that takes some interest on your part, intentional inclusion. You're creating intentional inclusion in your family, which will transfer into school. It's scary because sometimes that parent, you might have the fear that your child has. So it's looking as a parent, what are your own fears? I have two neurotypical children. So I know, even though I have children that have disabilities, I carry both lenses of that and compassion for how to approach it on both angles. You know, it's Mm. it's hard when it's your child because you're kind of having to face like, honestly, are these the kids I want my kids to play with? Is there behaviors that that child's having in class that maybe you don't want your son to pick up and being Mm -hmm. human about your own feelings? Because really, 
how are you feeling? And it's human. Like I've had times where I'm like, oh, I don't want my kid around that kid. And my kid could be that kid to somebody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And you got to be human with how you are feeling. You and your husband talking about it before you bridge that gap for your child. Because often we transfer our own, think about that. Like we have our own fears and we, we don't intentionally do it, but we transfer our own preconceived ideas of a group of people. I think oftentimes we think of like what's wrong with a child. And, and you said, I mean, the words that we use are really powerful and they can cut people down or they can communicate the wrong ideas. So I just wonder <laughs> how we can do better at talking about kids. Like you said, we're probably not going to use the words, oh, they're neurodivergent, especially no. with three or five-year-olds. So what would be better? I, I would just let your child speak to you and let them talk about the dynamic. Tell me about who's in your class. Okay, well, and they'll go through the class roster and then you're going to find that the language they use might speak for itself because most likely you've put them in an environment where the teacher is trained to hopefully kind of navigate that. And the teacher's probably not pointing out any difference. So make sure you're not teaching the difference because you see it when you take your daughter or son to preschool, like get their language. What do you notice about? And most often I think kids, like I call, I would always call my kids, all of them, like you're like the town crier because they're going to tell you, themselves what's going on right that's the like beauty of children they have an honesty so just hear what language they have and then that gives you a teachable moment Mm. like they're like there's this boy or there's this girl and they're kind of weird or they do that that gives you an opportunity to say you know jack or whatever your son is i I, let's think of a better term because weird means they're not as good as someone else or they're different or they're awkward like that's not a nice thing to say. So what is language you would use? I think it's super individual to a family. I think I could say, well, this is the appropriate term, but you've got to make it age appropriate for your child. It could be like, they're different than you, but they're not weird. They're Mm -hmm. just like in my household, I would say, or try to spend it. There's children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your brother in Jesus. So it's a matter of what the language within your family is. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, I feel like my children's faith really helped them navigate really tough things and continues to Hmm. as as they're growing, you know, as they're young adults. Um, So you've got to give your child the option and the opportunity to dialogue with you. What language is he using? What language is your three-year-old using? I think it's, it's not language. It's kind, kind words. I think it's that simple. Be kind, but let them tell you what they're they're seeing it as and then navigate it in a way that you feel as as a couple is kind you wrote a book called hopeless to hopeful and i wonder how on your own journey that you arrived at a place that is hopeful and and how you encourage others to find that place too i think in my own journey how i went how i how i got there to where i'm more hopeful and hopeful is that i went back to school. I did, I studied broadcast journalism as young and then I was a stay at home mom. And I think when going back into special education and feeling empowered and understanding that I could make a difference, I didn't have to take the situation and sit on my gifts and not use them to help other people. So I do think often you find special needs moms go outside of the box and they do those types of things that, you know, it could just be 
I don't know. So for me going on and educating myself and understanding special education, the different disabilities, and really just put me in a place where I could start to understand things behind. Cause I think my biggest struggles was more the school setting and understanding how to advocate for them. So I think empowering myself put me in a place of feeling hopeful. And then looking back, like I always say, hindsight is twenty twenty. looking back at like the diagnosis, like your child will, may not ever go to normal school. You may, your child may never, like, it's really hard for people on the spectrum to be married and have successful marriages because often they're, they struggle with empathy towards others. So I think that, you know, I had my daughter come to me when she was six saying, six years old, I know I love you, but I don't really know that I love you because I don't know how to feel love. So I think that I now have a, a young adult that graduated with a college degree. She got married. Her outcomes didn't look good, like on paper with that diagnosis. When you go sit in that room and have a psychologist who's very trained tell you like everything, and they don't say what they can't do, but it's like this, 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 and they throw all these labels of disabilities, things that are divergent, that divergent does not sound like a good word. And you're like, wow, like looking along the way and celebrating the successes that it may not look like what I thought, because I definitely feel like and sometimes feel go through feelings where you feel angry when you see them struggle. But I do that with my other kids too. like it shouldn't have been this way. But then seeing where she is and that, you know, particularly she's married and she's got a job and she's doing things she loves and she's happy. And I think that that's, I'm just thankful that God blessed her with a life that she's loving. And that's, I mentioned that I just, we all want to live a life we love no matter who we are. And we want to please the Lord in that life. So I think that I see her doing that and pursuing that. So like, how is that not a blessing? Mm-hmm. I think that makes me hope move from hopeless to hopeful. And I think you have to challenge yourself as a parent kids model what they see. They're going to look to you. There's you're still their parent when they're 30. So I think that it's just seeing that you're human, stay in a place of positivity, be a glasses full type of gal or guy and pursue that because that's, isn't that what God's calling us to do? Hmm. To live and to be thankful for our blessings. Thank you so much for being with us. A new episode of the Navigating Your Child's Education podcast is published the first and third Wednesday of each month. Make sure to subscribe to stay up to speed as each episode comes out. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes.